Welcome to Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes. Joyous conversations about what the afterlife evidence and modern science combine to tell us is true about our one reality. You have nothing to fear. You are eternal and you are perfectly loved. Knowing the truth changes everything. Now, here's Roberta. Welcome to Seek Reality. I'm Roberta Grimes and I'm so happy you're with us today. You know, I receive a lot of emails from listeners because, of course, I invite you to send emails when you have questions and comments. And on occasion, someone will say, oh, I wish we lived closer so we, you know, we could do lunch maybe. And as today's guest could tell you, I almost never have time for lunch. I, <laughs> I'm much too serious anyway. Um, most women find me boring because... I don't like to talk about the kinds of things that women like to talk about. Um, my wonderful friend, Kelly Glover, is among the very few women I ever have met who shares my interests. And she's actually just as busy and just as serious as I am. Um, she's with us for the fourth time today. I met Kelly Glover 15 years ago when I first moved to Texas and I joined the Unity Church of the Hills where she was one of the lead singers. And wow, can she ever sing? She's also interested in death and the afterlife. And I think that's how we first started doing lunch. Um, she's interested in death and the afterlife and fixing the world, and she likes to laugh. And that's kind of an odd mix, I know, I, but I think that's what got us doing lunch originally. Most of the women I've ever tried to befriend in my life aren't interested in the things I'm interested in, and she is. So we used to be able to have more time together, and we did lunch more in the olden days. The last time we did lunch was actually last summer. And at the time we said, you know, we really should get together more, but we haven't gotten together since then. We decided the only way we ever were going to be able to get together would be probably if I had her on Seek Reality again. This is the fourth time. And the, the first time we could find when we'd be able to do that was now. And therefore, she's my guest again today. We wanted to find something to talk about. And we decided we'd talk about the fact that, you know, we miss our parents. Um, her parents left us just before Christmas. And it was that's a story. We're going to tell that. And my parents have been gone a little more, a little longer than that. It's a difficult thing when you lose parents, even if, of course, if they've been with you for as long as our parents were with us. Nevertheless, we were going to tell that story. I want to tell the story also of her father, who was one of the most interesting people that I've ever actually ever known. But I want to tell Kelly's story, too, because she she actually she went back to get her Ph.D. with most at a time when many people are thinking about what they're going to do when they retire. And. Uh, I'm going to read her. I said, hey, give me a quick intro. Well, she sent me a longer intro and I'm going to read the whole thing because I think, <laughs> see, see, whatever we get together, she starts giggling and then I start giggling. We've got to, we've got to play this serious for once. Pretend we're not having lunch. Okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. We're being serious. Kelly T. Glover is a published scholar. And I'm, we're being serious now. And she's a doctoral research assistant for just another year. And then she will be a PhD at Texas State University, where she's working on her PhD in school improvement. And boy, do we need that now. 
Her dissertation will focus on how Black female music educators and musicians, and this is something I don't even understand what it means, use cultural somatics, which is crit- <laughs> I'm going to start giggling too. critical embodied pedagogics. I really don't know pedagogies to heal and liberate themselves from racialized trauma that they experienced in music school. I've heard that story, though. She'll tell it with implications of how to apply these strategies in educational and community leadership context. I really don't get this, Kelly. I'm sorry. Kelly has music education degrees from Howard University and the Eastman School of Music. That's the story she'll tell. She's a music educator for 25 years, with nine of those years as a full-time music education entrepreneur. And this is a great story. She's the creator of a culturally responsive music education cartoon and music game called You Better Sing. Her company also mentored youth interested in having careers in the arts. This is what she's really good at. You Better Sing was featured in the PBS show Blackademics, where she discussed how racism affects music education and its effects on students of color. Her company's products were also sent overseas to work with young Nigerian girls who are affected by the Boko Haram crisis in an initiative to educate and heal students through music. And I should add that Kelly and I, we loved, this was fun. We loved doing this. We kept, we wrote a book together, which was called The Fun of Living Together. We must learn to live together as brothers or perish together as fools. And of course, that's a quote from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And I'm going to say this first, but one day everyone will know it. He was the greatest American of the 20th century. We've never promoted that book because of all the chaos going on in this country now around race. It's going to be a part of Seek Reality Online, and I plan to work with it there. And I, I just have to tell you, we had so much fun writing that book and, and doing the, the, the um, um, uh, just, just, it was just hysterical for us to do it together. We, we were having lunch one day and we worked out how to fix all the racial problems in the country in one lunch. And then we wrote the book together and, and now we're going to start to do some things with it. <laughs> Kelly, oh, I'm so glad that we're, we, I mean, we're not together in the same room, but I feel like we're together again having lunch. Welcome. It's so wonderful to have you here today. Thanks so much. It's good to be here again. <laughs> All right. Before we talk about our parents, I just want to talk about your dad. Tell his story a little bit. Okay. Well, um, my father, um, Dr. Roy G. Phillips, was um, born um, in 1934 in Minden, Louisiana, and he was the son of a sharecropper. So he grew up re- really poor, um, as did my as did my mother. She was in Arkansas, not not very far away from from him in um, northern Louisiana. Um, so uh, when he was eight years old, his mother passed away and his father remarried pretty soon. And during what's known as the Great Migration, when many African-Americans were fleeing the South, fleeing Jim Crow laws um, for a better life, they, with many other African-Americans, there was a wave to go North where there was more opportunity to go North and West. So they moved from Minden, Louisiana, 
to um, Michigan, to Muskegon, Michigan. Um, also some, spent some time on the West Coast where my grandfather worked in um, Navy shipyards in the, in the 1940s. But um, they ended up settling in Muskegon, Michigan. And that's where he met my, my mother in, when they were in high school. Um, and they went to, um, uh, to a high school where blacks and whites went, went, to, um, went to school together. And I, I didn't learn until later that that, was, that wasn't always the case. Even, even in Detroit, Michigan, there were segregated schools. I never knew that until my sister was telling me about it. And then I asked my father about it. But I thought that, that was like really interesting had no idea that happened up north. But um, so my, my father ended up getting his master's degree um, and his um, PhD. He was an educator yeah. and he became a community college, college president. And um, we moved from Michigan in 1974, yeah, 1974 to um, Washington State. Um, and um, well, he he started off as a as an as a not an assistant principal as a vice president for a community college. He was a principal and he was on track to become a superintendent, but he decided to to go the the college president route instead. Let's savor this for a moment. Mm-hmm. This guy was born a sharecropper, and there he is, a community college president and a PhD. Yes. Mm-hmm. I love that story. And you had to meet him. He was a classy, classy man and funny. I mean, Kelly is funny, but I know where she got it because her father was a funny, funny guy. <laughs> I mean, what amazing, what an amazing story, Kelly. Keep going. All right, keep going. Yeah. So I mean, he he overcame a lot. Um oh wow. Did he of ever of course being in being born in the South in the 1930s, his, his father. Yeah didn't um his father hadn't my grandfather had a ninth grade education I believe it was and he educated not only my uh father but also his his other son my my uncle um he passed away years ago but he he earned a master's degree so to have wow. two college educated sons with graduate degrees um yeah. that that's that that's pretty incredible. Um, it is. So I will say that my father. Um, so he wrote a book about um, our family, and um, he went to West Africa. He went to Ghana to find out more about um, our family lineage. And during that time, he um, did a lot of reflecting, and he decided to write a book about what it felt like to go back to Africa. Um, to go to the door of no return, to to visit yes. the, the slave castles and everything, and it it, it really moved him. And so um, when he wrote th- this book, one of the things he talked about was the fact that he went to what's called a Rosenwald School. Um, and they still exist today. There, there were schools um, started by Booker T. Washington um, and and a white man. I forgot his first name, but his last name was um, Rosenwald. Um, to to educate rural blacks between 1912 and that the, the schools were built between 1912 and 1932, I believe. But my father attended one of those schools, um, and he talked about it in in his book. What's the title of the book? Because I read I read your father's book. It was quite moving. 
Yes, it's called Exodus from the Door of No Return, a family's journey. I can look it up on on Amazon and tell you. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll I'll put it in the notes to this. Exactly. If you find it. Yeah. But yeah, so um, reading that book um, for me was very uh, very painful because I I learned even more. I mean, my father always told us you know, how he grew up and as, as did my mother and the things that they had to overcome. And the, the, the great emotional resiliency is, is what we learned from, from, from our parents that when, when horrible dismembering things happen to you as a human being, um, they gave us the tools to remember our whole, our wholeness as, as human beings. Um, and everyone, no, no matter who you are on this planet, when you when you come into this planet, there are going to be things to dismember, to dismember you, um, to help you forget who you are um, in your connection to, to God, and and that to to make you think that there's separateness and duality when all of that is just not it's just not true it's just not real, and so I I feel very fortunate to have not just a, a, a man who was um, educated um, book-wise, but educated on a spiritual level. Um, yeah. and, and especially my, my mom, I have, I have to say, she was actually the, the, the leader of that. Um, we, we were not um, raised in the, the Christian church, even though I, I am a Christian. Um, my mother was against organized religion, and so they did, she did not, and as did my dad, but especially my mom, they didn't want us to become indoctrinated into believing that there was only one way. And they didn't want me to be indoctrinated into a religion that was used to help colonize us. Yes. Not say, you know, Christianity is a beautiful thing, but it was also used as, as a tool to, um, to colonize people that, I mean, that that's just, that's just true. Um, so we took the good parts of it and, um, found the spirituality in it, the, the, the way, the way you do Roberta. And so I ended up being, um, go, going to unity churches, um, starting in high school, but even, even more so, um, when I became an adult, um, when I, when I was in my thirties, so I'm, I feel really blessed to have had parents who, even though they, even though they, they come from a generation where, where people were really, really, really indoctrinated into believing that there's only one way and only one right way that they saw the, the, the bigger picture um, and did not force things down, down, our, down our throats and, and let, and let us discover on, on our own, the beauty of Christianity and the beauty of, um, Buddhism, um, of other philosophies. So it's, to, to me, it's, it's, it's miraculous that, that, that even happened. Cause in, in this cohort that I'm in getting my PhD, um, there are only 12 of us and almost half of us are, are African-American. Um, and 
my experiences were very, very different from, from theirs. As we, as we share our, our journeys, we, we have to write our educational biographies, our racialized autobiographies. Um, and our, my eyes were just opened at a very, very early age about history and spirituality. And that's pretty rare, not just for black people, but for just about, just about anybody, just, just like you were saying, it's, it's hard for you to connect with, with, with people. Um, and it, it's, it sometimes is for me too, because I was just raised to think really, really differently, to think really critically about why things are the way they right. are. And right. to also look for the, the love in everything, uh, look, look for ways to remember wholeness in every single thing that you do, no matter what happens, always remember your wholeness. Whenever you and I would talk over lunch, it would it would be like an hour and a half, two hours, whatever. Mm-hmm. And we would talk about complicated topics and we would solve problems. And it occurred to me early on, I don't know if we ever talked about this, that you actually uh, status wise were raised higher than I was. I mean, my father was an accountant, not not a public accountant. He was an accountant for a store. And mm-hmm. your father was a PhD and he owned real estate, commercial real estate. Mm-hmm. And, in, you know, in a, in a, you know, you, you just, you actually were status wise higher than I was. And you always, I mean, you were, you were an intellectual. I mean, I loved the fact that we could talk about all the things we talked about. I didn't know another woman. I never met another woman, even college educated who talked about all the things you talked about. And that yeah, I think it, is it, it, it is kind of rare. I mean, I, I haven't found anyone in, in my cohort. I mean, we, we relate on different levels, but um, I, I'm, s- some people are starting to come out of the woodwork now, but it, it, it is, it is kind of rare. It is. It really is. Even college educated women tend to talk about frivolous stuff. I have to say, and I'm sorry to say it. I hate to say that, but it, but it, it, it's, it starts to be boring and I don't watch TV. I mean, I don't go to movies. I'm too busy to do all that stuff. And, and, uh, and you're interested in the things that I'm interested in, frankly. Yeah. I mean, let's solve the problems of the world while we're here. I mean, we're not going to be here that long. Okay. <laughs> right. Exactly right. I know. Oh, it's, it's, it, it, I, I really, I mean, we really have to try to do lunch once a year. We really do. I mean, it's been, it's been too long. Yeah. Well, the pandemic di- didn't help. That's true. It did get in the way. Yeah. Oh my goodness. But, but all right. So let, let's, let's talk about, um, you know, your father's book is very moving. Please, if you can find the title, uh, let, let's let's at least put it in the notes to this to this program. I'd love to let people have a chance to to meet him because a uh, remarkable man. So let, let's tell your parents' story. Um, they they were they were at your house, and then um, your father died, and your mother almost immediately too, and nobody expected that. Yeah. So my, my mother, um, went first. Um, so my mother, um, or your mother went first down. They were, they were in their eighties, right? Yes. They were in their eighties. My mom was almost 83 and my dad had just turned 86. Wait, is that right? No. Yeah. Yeah. My mom. So, but yeah, my mom was 82 and my father was 86 and we were just two months away from my mom's 83rd birthday. 
So yeah, my mom, um, she died due to um, complications from cancer treatments. She'd gotten liver cancer in 2019 um, and they were able to, to get everything out. But then um, the following year, they, the, the cancer came back. And so they decided to do treatments then. And um, she just went downhill really fast. She ended up having a stroke um, because her, her, um, her kidneys stopped, her kidneys stopped functioning. Um, and my father had, had been ill before then, but he, he bounced back. He was on hospice, but after he'd gotten on hospice, he, he got, he got a lot better. Um, and so my father, we didn't even have a chance to tell him that my mother had passed because the, the night before she passed, my dad is like, he, well, he, he kept asking where my mother was. So she had come home and, um, she was, she was in a hospital bed in, in, in their room. My father did not really want to look at her. It's like he was in, in denial. And, and he had told me that that was his worst fear that she was going to die of, of cancer. And so we, we were basically there the last three months of, of their lives on and on, I would say for like three weeks at a time and then go home. Um, and um, yeah, it, it all happened really fast. My mom came home from the hospital um, December, I believe it was December, gosh, I think it was like December 2nd, December 9th, I think it was December 9th. And she um, passed away December 15th. It was, it was really, really fast. She only had one night where there, there was some suffering, but then she, of course they gave her some morphine and after that, you know, she's, she was pretty much gone. And that, that night before she passed, my dad kept asking, why, why can't, why can't I be in the bed with, with my wife? And we we're like, she's right there. She, she's just next to you in a hospital bed. Cause remember she kept falling. And then finally the last coherent thing he said to me was, man, she must be really sick. And he was so sad. And then that night, he talked all night as if he were a community college president again. And it's like, he went back in time and he started planning. He was, it was as if he were planning all of the programs that he had started on the North campus of, um, of, of Miami-Dade community college where, where he was oh, um, yeah. president of the, the president. He was planning the police academy, the fire academy. Uh-huh. And my sister and I were, were, were at one point we had to make sure that he stayed in bed because he said, okay, I have to, I have to be sure that the building is locked. And I think at, at that point he, he went back to him being a, a, a principal and he's like, okay, I've, I've got to lock up the building. And then it's, he, he was just going back in time. And he, he literally talked the whole night. My sister and I got like zero, zero sleep. <laughs> and yeah. so my, my sister after a while was saying, man, what, what can we do to get him to stop talking? I said, Crystal, there's going to be one day where he's going to stop talking. Cause my dad, my dad had Alzheimer's. Oh, yeah. And so he, I was like, let's, let's just, 
let let him talk because there's going to be one day where he's he's not going to be able to talk. I mean, I wasn't thinking that he was going to die then. Yeah. But um, yeah. And so that that next day, my mom passed away in the middle of the night well, or early that morning. And then we were like, oh, my gosh, how are we going to tell my dad? And we could not wake him up. It's like he was in it's like he was in a comatose state. Finally, that evening, we were able to to get him up to to eat because he was also diabetic. And we, we were worried, you know, that he was going to deteriorate if he didn't get something to, to eat. So we, we got got him up to the table, um, get ready to eat. And we were going to tell him about my mom passing after he ate because we were afraid that he wouldn't eat if we, you know, told him that before. Okay. And so he said he had to go to the bathroom. And and so he had a walker and we noticed that he was really unsteady on his feet. So my sister and I and my um, nephew, we helped him to the bathroom. And it's like he started to have a seizure. And um, he just went into this like comatose state. So we had to get him back in bed and he never woke up. So we never even told him. No, he was already with yeah, her. He, he already knew. He already knew. Yeah, yeah. he wanted to yeah. be with my mom. And he and he had been saying for the past two years of his life that he was ready to go. So uh, no, yeah. it, it's they're they're together already. Oh, yes. <laughs> I mean, uh, they're but, but this is what they would have wanted. Of course, this is exactly what they would have wanted. Yeah. But, you know, how did you feel? The important thing I think for, we want people to know is that you you weren't you were glad for them, right? I mean, yes. Yeah. There, because there, there was no more suffering and no. we were relieved that my father went, that we were so relieved that we didn't have to tell him because we knew that he would have been devastated. He was lost without my mom. Yeah. I mean, they, they'd known each other since he was 19 and she was 15. Yeah. Um, Like whenever she went out of town without him, oh, he, he, he was, he was a mess. So, yeah, my 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 dad, he he knew that she was gone, and that that that's why he went so quickly. Um, so we were we were very glad to be there. I mean, to be there for for the process. It felt like we were midwives for for my mother and for for my yeah. father. That that's that's exactly right. what it felt like. It it felt like we were birthing them with the hospice team, um, to go into their next. Um, plane of existence that that that's what it felt like we we were just we were just on call and just waiting and watching seeing how the the breathing was slowing down and the the hospice team was great they were explaining how it all went but I, I was familiar with it because I went through that with my husband's parents seeing seeing how it goes and I was helping my my sister and and my my other relatives there who were living with them to they to see to educate them on like what, what the signs were. And I'm like, yeah, it's, it's just a matter of days. Like I, I knew, I knew because I'd seen it before. Um, and so it was, it was, for me, it was healing as strange as it may sound and, and very comforting to, to have been there for both of my parents. Um, it just, it just felt like, I mean, they were there for our births and I feel like I was there for their birth um to 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 move on yeah i felt like it was paying it forward you were there for me 
when I was born and I was there for them when they were born to go someplace else, you know? Yes. yes. It felt like a gift. Yes. It truly felt like a gift. Yeah. No, uh, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. It really is to be able to help them go to the next level. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it's, um, and it, it's such a joyous thing to be free of that old anchor that, that was keeping them there. I mean, if it's no longer serving them and uh, your father was such a dynamic individual, look at all that he did in his life and that she did in her life too. I mean, not only did they have their own children, but how many children did they take in? How many, how many young people did they yeah. help that, that were not being helped by, that they didn't have parents, that they weren't being, being helped by the culture? Yeah, so I had four adopted siblings. So when I was 20 years old, when I was 20 and my siblings were 29, 30, and 31, my, my parents adopted four, four children who were... Um, brothers and full brother and brothers and sisters. And so they're, they're my siblings as well. So they, they went through a lot with their birth parents and my parents were like, if, if we don't help them, then that's going to be another lost generation. And so they, they adopted them into our family and they, they, they are my, my family. So, um, it's, um, but weren't they beautiful? They didn't have to do that. Weren't no, they, they did not. To do that? that yeah. It's, it's, it's just part of, it's part of how my parents were raised that you take care, you, you take care of people in, in your community. And my, my grandfather was adopted. Um, our last name is Phillips, but that that's our adopted last name. Um, yeah, so adoption is in my family. I have an adopted nephew that, that we we are the actually the the last of the blood Phillips slash Harris family um, because every every my, my brother adopt adopted a, a son and um, my sister and I didn't have children and uh, another brother passed away before he had children. So yeah, it's family is not just just blood. You know, you, right. we, we, we take people in our, our cousins li- lived with us for, for a while. Um, yeah. My, my parents always reached out to people and I, I would say in my, in my family now, my sister is that person. She, she always takes people in cause she, she's single and doesn't, doesn't have, doesn't have um, children. So she, she is the one that's carrying, carrying that on. And I guess my, my um, brother is too, ha- having adopted a son. But me as an educator, I view my kids as as my as my adopted children. So. Right. <laughs> right. No, but no, but it's but it's wonderful that you're doing that, and and it's been very important to you to do that. I, I know that you've um, and, and and giving them, trying to give them a way to express themselves through music, if if that's the best way for them to express themselves. That's a wonderful thing that you've done. Yeah, because it really helped me as 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 a child because I grew up stuttering. Um, I either stuttered or it took me a really long time to get my thoughts out because I was just like so excited to that people were paying attention to me because I was so much younger than everybody else. When everyone else was a teenager, I was like preschool age. 
And okay. so music was the music and theater was the only place that I felt like I could express fully express myself with people actually listening to me and taking and taking me seriously. <laughs> well, yeah, but and then you you sing so beautifully too. Oh my goodness. Oh, thank you. No, I um but using that because you can sing, you can then attract children to thinking of singing as a way that they can start to express themselves too. Yeah, it's it's truly a form of expression. It could be written expression through writing music, um, embodied expression through through how you feel, what, what it feels like to get your emotions out through through your body, using your body. Um yeah, the the arts is is a great way to to express and to um and to heal yourself to to connect with your emotions and to release stuck emotions from from your body and that that's where that critical um critical embodied pedagogy come comes in that that that's what that is. But and you got the best possible education. I mean, going to Howard and then going to Eastman School of Music. And and you found that kind of overwhelming in the beginning too. Yeah, um, going to um, Howard even so the audition process to to get into Howard or into a, a music school. Um, that's where the that's where the racialized trauma. <laughs> yeah, you began. talk about that. Talk a little about it here. Well, I won't say that's where it began. I, I first got it at, at the age of three. But in terms, in terms of school, um, in terms of college, I should say, um, yeah, getting into music school, um, one of the universities that I auditioned at was, was in Florida. And because I wasn't singing um, European, I was singing European classical music, but I wasn't singing it in this voice. <laughs> I was singing it in this voice instead. And because oh. I was using this voice instead of this voice, okay. they thought that I had, they thought that I had um, severe vocal damage. Uh, I had a, a, a full academic scholarship to, to this university. But when I auditioned for the music school, they, they were, you, you would think that I was murdering someone the way they were looking at me when I, when I was singing this excerpt from, from an opera. And they, they thought that my voice was ruined because, because I was singing in what, is known as the chest voice, but I was really singing in the chest and head voice, but they, they didn't see it that way. I sounded too, you know, I, I sounded like a, like I was singing like, uh, like gospel music, you know, with the, with the big voice like this. And it's just a matter of your vocal cords touching slightly or, or completely touching is, is, is the difference between the two singing styles. Oh, um, and so they didn't accept me. And so my father had um, a meeting in, in DC. And so I'm like, you know what? I totally forgot about Howard university. Cause as a little girl, I was like, Ooh, I want to, I want to go there. And so I auditioned there and they were like, well, you know that you're singing in your chest voice, dear. And I was like, uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah. They said, well, we want to hear you singing your head voice. So I had to 
sing up like this. <laughs> and so they're like, oh, you have a beautiful voice. Okay, you you can be in our program, but you oh. can't you can't um, be a voice major. And I was like, oh, no, I don't want to be a voice major. I want to be a music education major and a musical theater minor. And they said, oh, no, dear, you're not allowed to do musical theater. You can't be in the jazz program. You can't be in the gospel oh, Lord. because all of those are not healthy for the voice. So you can only study European classical music. And I'm like, wait a minute, isn't this a black university? What, <laughs> yeah, what about that? Like, wait a minute. <laughs> so, so none of it was, was allowed. And then I found out that that's pretty much the case oh. at most major universities where, whether they're predominantly um, white institutions or, or not, things have gotten better. Oh, but um, like at Howard, they, they now uh, they do now allow students to um, to be in the gospel choir or to take um, jazz, some of the jazz vocal classes. But when I went in the 80s and 90s, it was not allowed. It, um, I found out through interviewing people for my dissertation that it changed in the I think it was the early 2000s or, or the, the mid 2000s when they started to allow people oh. to, to sing the, the genres that were created by African-Americans. <laughs> Good heavens. Oh, why is life so complicated? Why is yeah, it it's, there's a whole history behind it that, that I did my master's thesis on. Because I was like, where does that come from? I mean, I, I, I didn't get it. And even Eastman. Eastman did allow me to, um, to take jazz classes, but they didn't have jazz vocal because, I mean, the, their, theirs was so... I just had to take jazz instrumental classes because they only had European classical music pedagogy there. They they didn't even have jazz um, jazz vocal classes there because you know that there's there's this whole history behind oh those genres are considered they actually call them low low brow or low music. Um, oh. Yeah, it's it's crazy. <laughs> it's that, that's a whole other other topic, but yeah, so. My dissertations on that somewhat, but my master's thesis was on that and for the history behind that and how it affects how we teach it and what we teach. It's it's insane. It really is physically <laughs> and mentally and emotionally totally insane. Everything yeah. about it. Oh. So it's impossible to get through life without being traumatized one way or another. Yeah. Nobody gets out of this unscathed. <laughs> We just have to help each. It's our it's our job to to help each other remember our goodness and our wholeness. Yes. Well, bless you, dear. Oh my goodness, <laughs> this is so much fun, though. It really is. I'm so glad we finally got to do this. Yeah, me too. Me too. But but you know, I had the same experience when I lost my I lost my father much before twenty years before I lost my mother. But when oh, wow. When, when, when she get well, because they were 20 years apart in age, uh, they, they, um, and he died before she in terms of his age, but, but still it, in both cases, they, they, it was their time to go. And, and of course I knew where they were going. It's anybody who starts when they're, you know, right out of college, learning about studying death in the afterlife. It was like my thing. I mean, everyone has, has a hobby. I just had an right. especially stupid hobby, but, <laughs> 
but it really, it really was, wasn't it? But um, but if, and finally, now it's the time, it's the time when I need to sort of know about this stuff. And boy, was I ever ready because I started studying it with it when I when most people are learning about life. I was already learning about death, but. I was very glad for them because I knew where they were going and I knew what a relief it was for them to get there. Yeah. And so I really never cried for either of them. How can you cry when you know how happy they are? Right. Yeah. And, now, and I must admit, I have cried, but it's not for the, the reasons that I think mo- most people would, would think. Why yeah. did you cry? Um, well, Mm. That 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 that's a really loaded question. I'll just say that we're 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 in um, some litigations with uh, with, oh, with, yes. with with a family member who um, won't leave, and that that that's just been that this whole that whole experience that we're still going through. We're going to court for the hopefully the last time in June. Oh, I'm um, glad. That has I'm been very glad when that's all over for you, my dear. Oh, yeah. that's awfully that's a nuisance yeah and and i and i do miss them i mean like talk talking about um you know go, going through everything go, going through this phd program is it's it's been a very spiritual experience especially the way they they have us do the program it it's it feels like church i mean they they have yeah. us you know we have to write about our childhoods to um and and our and our parents we we have to write about our our histories our ontologies and because they want that to inform what we do our dissertations on. So I've, I've done all this uncovering and they, they talk about, you know, how history affects us, how emotions affect us and how that affects us as educators. And so, and going through all that, I've had to do a lot of digging up uh, of our family, of the good things in my family and the bad things in my family. And um, it's, it's hard, it's hard to look at, but, but it's also healing. And so look, looking back at things and, and why we did certain things and why my parents did certain things, um, look, looking at our pathology as, as a family, um, it's painful, but, but again, like I said, it's also healing. And so lots of tears have, have come because of that. And but they've been mostly been tears of gratitude because I'm like, but when I hear other people's stories of how they grew up, I mean, I'm the only person in my cohort, black, white, Hispanic, Middle Eastern, who grew up with a, like upper middle class and with a, a PhD educated parent yeah. and yeah. and you know, openness to other religions and stuff. I'm I'm the only one and looking at people in, in other cohorts too, when, when we all get together and share our stories, I'm like the, the only one who was raised the, the way, the way I was. I mean, so oh, I'm, I'm really, really grateful for, for that. Yes. Very open and people talk to me. I'm like, I'm like, the, I'm like the counselor of, of, of my cohort. People oh. gravitate to me because I, I listen to people without judgment, you know, because, you know, I realize we're, we're all, we're all spiritual beings. I'm having a human experience, you know, Um, totally. And so people feel that and it's, um, yeah, I'm just, I'm, I would not be this kind of a person if it were not for my mom and dad. And I I cry lots of, especially at the beginning, I cried lots of tears of gratitude 
um, of how I was raised, gratitude of being able to be there with them when they passed and gratitude to be able to continue the, the, the legacy um, through uh, being an educator. Uh, I, had, I had great role models. You had wonderful role models and a beautiful upbringing. And yes, you, you could not have asked. You could not have dreamed of having better parents than you had. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, you were I'm so very grateful. blessed. So blessed. Yeah. You couldn't have had a better, a better life with them. No. Oh, my dear. We're coming to the end of our time together. No, I, this is perfect. I'm so glad we did this. Me too. That's right. Oh, thank you so much for being here, my dear. Thank you for having me. And we we do have to do this again soon. No, we have to do lunch. We have to do another lunch. <laughs> yeah, we do. I can hardly wait. That's going to be fun. Well, please consider yourself loved, loved, very much loved, and consider yourself hugged. You too, Roberta. Well, everyone, again, we've come to the end of our time together. And this has been Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes. I'm so glad you were with us for this very special time. Please never forget that you are a powerful, eternal being. You never began. You never will end. And when you get that, when you really get it, it changes everything in your life for the better. Next week, our guest will be Roseanne Norris. She's the mother of five children, but one of them now is in spirit. In January of 2018, her 30-year-old son, Lee, succumbed to an accidental carbon monoxide poisoning. And then he appeared in the pictures that Sonia Rinaldi is receiving in Brazil. So she joined him in the Sonia Rinaldi movie. So we'll be talking about that and also about her work with Helping Parents Heal, where she's now an affiliate leader and a caring listener. And this week, of course, we've been talking with my beautiful friend, Kelly Glover, who has been with us for the fourth time. As you know, my own nonfiction books are Liberating Jesus, My Thomas, The Fun of Dying, The Fun of Staying in Touch, The Fun of Growing Forever, The Fun of Living Together, and soon now, The Fun of Loving Jesus, Embracing the Christianity that Jesus Taught. For young children, there's The Fun of Meeting Jesus, and you can order all these books through bookstores and Amazon.com, and the adult books are also available as audiobooks. If you want to talk about any of my books, or if you want to talk about anything at all, you can always contact me through the green contact block on robertagrimes.com. I answer every email. Just please be sure to give me your correct email address, or sadly, the email will never get to you. Past episodes of Seek Reality are available on web.radio.net or just about wherever you can find any kind of podcast. More and more people tell me that now they just listen each week through the Seek Reality app that you can find for free in the iTunes app store or just about anywhere you can find free apps. And meanwhile, this has been Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes. Please enjoy and make the most of this coming week in our one reality, knowing that you are a powerful, eternal being, and you in particular, most of all in the whole universe, you are infinitely loved. You've been listening to Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes. Roberta blogs and answers questions at robertagrimes.com. Join us every week as we explore what the afterlife evidence and modern science combine to tell us is true about the one reality we all share. Knowing the truth changes everything.